0: Well, hello everyone, welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our mission is to bring actionable insights and inspirational examples of how to tap deeper into your potential and ignite the flame within you to truly create a remarkable life on your terms. When I look back at my journey of conscious development, when I started to understand the world, my role, the possibilities, there's no doubt it started as a teenager. Something was sparked in me to explore my potential, to see what I was made of and learn how to push the boundaries of what I thought were my limitations. Knowing what I know now, I feel very lucky and blessed to have discovered this thirst for self-education very early. And I know not everyone has taken the same path. We're all shaped by life experiences, most profoundly and lasting, by our immediate family, specifically our parents or whomever was our primary guardian growing up. We learn a lot by watching, and as my 16-month-old son continues to remind me, kids are watching and imitating everything. We teach them what is acceptable, good or bad, in every facet of life. But of course, parents and family aren't the only influence and shaper of our lives. Teachers, coaches, community leaders are always planting seeds of right and wrong, possible or not, opportunities and dangers. When you think back to your youth, who was a mentor for you? What life lessons, skills, and perspectives do they give you that continues to influence you today? So, on that note, I'm delighted to bring you today's conversation with the world's foremost authority on youth mentoring, Gene Rhodes. Her previous book, Stand By Me, transformed the field of youth mentoring by insisting on rigorous evaluation of mentoring programs and increased training. Her latest book lays out an ambitious, practical, and urgent plan for reform that focuses on what young people really need in the 21st century, especially in realities of a COVID-19 pandemic world. I hope you enjoy the conversation and use this as an opportunity to reflect back on who shaped your life and whose life could you be shaping today? On today's show, we're speaking with Gene Rhodes. Gene is the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology and Director of the Center of Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, co-founder of both the European and Asian Centers for Evidence-Based Mentoring and a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Jean's research inspired Big Brothers Big Sisters to redefine their one-size-fits-all approach for a more effective model that focuses less on building friendships and more on building skills via a combination of in-person interactions and mental health apps usage. In her new book, Older and Wiser, New Ideas for Youth Mentoring in the 21st Century, Jean argues that now is a time for mentoring programs using a combination of volunteers and digital platforms to revamp their strategies to harness the unrealized potential of their millions of volunteers and staunch these educational and mental health losses. Jean, it's a great honor to spend time with you today. Welcome to The Ignition Show.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. and I feel like it's a very timely conversation as well. You know, I feel like not only has the world been gripped by the pandemic over the last year, and we adults' our working lives have been upended, and student lives have been upended, but you know maybe you layer in how we in North America and part of the world too has been mixed with the grip of the U.S. elections and all the rhetoric that goes on there. It's and maybe it's a, it's a time of hope or a time of maybe new beginnings in some way, and really to not only get out of um, get out of our own own self and our, our focus on ourselves and the challenges that we've been faced focusing on, but also helping those those at risk. And your particular expertise is, is the youth of today. And maybe a good starting point is, just from your vantage point, what is the state of the nation of youth today? What, what excites you and what concerns you?
1: Well, answering that question, we have to take into account the fact that we're in this pandemic that has really, I think, taken a huge toll on the youth today. Um, you know, you think about all the developmental milestones and what it means to be a young person Um, moving away from their parents typically, you know, forming new social relationships, emotional um, bonds with with people their age. And and now all of a sudden they're in this situation where they're cut off from their friendship groups, cut off from other caring adults that they might, you know, form really close attachments to and new ideas about their identity. And so really there's this unmeasured consequence to youth development that I see happening. But even before that, when we do scans of youth today, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of excitement and activism, which, which you referred to, which I think has really been unleashed by this election. And um, thank goodness it's over and we have some hope moving forward. But um, in addition to all of that, we also have a lot of anxiety. We have um, you know, about 25% of young people uh, really struggling with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, trauma. Um, we have concerns about perfectionism among some groups of kids that really puts them in at a disadvantage of living more fulfilled lives um, because they're just so caught up in really trying to achieve um, things that may or may not be worthwhile. Um, so we see both, we see the strengths and excitement of young people, but we also see the underbelly of that, which is a lot of nervous, um concern about the future, about the future of our environment, about their own day-to-day lives, which have been exacerbated by COVID-19.
0: Yeah, I was actually just reading an article this morning um, in the national media in in Canada here about students' um, 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 unprecedented levels of those conditions in university, particularly oh, yeah. talking about the the distance learning and not being on campus and all those social interactions and being even locked more in front of devices and the challenges around there. And from some of the work I'm doing with the local university here, you it just it. Um, I think for those who aren't involved, maybe who don't have kids at that age or it's been many years since they've gone through that that uh, that gauntlet of universe, university, like myself, probably shocked at the at the. She's often surprised, saddened by the level of anxiety, isolation, loneliness in this ever-connected world.
1: I know. I know. And, and I think, you know, all we've done is is made it worse. What happens when a young person um, moves through and to adulthood is they go through, um, you know, major really revolutions in in their biological functioning but also their social functioning they move from looking at adults and you know kind of being in more vertical relationships to really defining themselves in terms of people at their level horizontal relationships relationships with peers and with lovers and all of that is getting disrupted as well as uh, really um, cognitive changes and changes in the ability to think. There's something called metacognition that Piaget um, talked about years ago, where where is that as you go through adolescence and into adulthood, you begin to be able to take a step back and look at yourself uh, in a different way and begin to formulate your identity and try on new identities. And I really do wonder how that is getting affected by the social isolation that we are already experiencing but has been hugely exacerbated by the need to socially isolate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into a bit of the backstory here and how you became the, the, the world's expert in this area. I guess I'm curious, when did you first know, was there a a moment or an experience that really led you down this path into youth mentoring? And how did you know it was a calling for you?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, uh, I, I grew up in New Jersey, just a Jersey kid with kind of mediocre ambition and um, went off to college and um, became best friends with this really urbane, interesting uh, other freshman in my dorm. Her name was Marina Albee. And she, her dad was a professor at at University of Vermont where I was. And I began to go to their house and see a whole different world, a world of ideas, of, of reading, of ambition, and really of social justice. He was really committed to improving the lives of people who were downtrodden either by homophobia or racism or inequality or whatever it was he was committed to social justice and he became a very important mentor to me um it was a time when my parents after 30 years were going through a divorce i didn't know what i wanted to be or who i wanted to be and i locked into that mentoring relationship in a way that really changed who i was and then i went off and because he was a clinical community psychologist that's what i wanted to do i went off And i began to study it and i didn't know mentoring was an area at all that i wanted to study but i um, started to look at this was chicago during the late 1980s during a big crack epidemic and my research question for my dissertation was why do some kids thrive and really do well when other kids seem to succumb to all of the pressures of gang membership and violence and um you know mental health concerns and i began interviewing kids who we're living in some of the toughest neighborhoods of Chicago. Who their teacher said these kids are resilient, you know they're they're vulnerable but invincible, as Emmy Werner once said. And I started to see what what did they have in common? And almost without exception, what they had in common was one good relationship with a caring adult outside their family, a teacher, mm-hmm. a coach, an aunt, uh, an older sibling, somebody who who saw potential in them and really just thought that they could do great things and encourage them to do that and help them reinvent a promising future. And so I went to the research and I said, well, is there, is there other research on that? And sure enough, there were some developmental psychologists who had begun to look at this issue. Um, people who are looking at kids who survived war and terrible trauma. And um, they talked about the, the importance of, of a caring adults in the lives of vulnerable youth. However, they described it, they hadn't researched it. And so in the late 80s, I started to have really researchable questions about this notion of the protective relationship of one good relation, of one good mentor in, in someone's lives. And I said, first of all, is it really, this was my research question when I was just starting as an academic, is it really that the mentor causes the young person to do really well? Or is it really just like a correlation? That is a kid who's on a path is so attractive to adults that, you know, they draw good
0: question. Their yeah.
1: sphere. So is it cause or correlation? Um, can you reproduce these naturally formed relationships with your teacher through programs like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, or are these two very different things? And how, this was another kind of clinical developmental question, but it's like, how is your upbringing with your parents position you to form these relationships? Does it compensate for one that you didn't have with your parents? Or is it because you had that model that you're able to now go out into the world and trust that other adults can do that? So with those questions in hand, I took a job as an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and I began a uh, what now has become a 30-year research project because every time I would get a finding, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. What about this? and um, know 200 publications and several books later i'm still completely intrigued and have not answered all the questions
0: (laughs) and what what is it about that that has you continue to be intrigued what what is it about this topic that really speaks to the the core of who you are uh
1: well i think because of that relationship i had his name was professor george alby And he was at one point the president of the American Psychological Association and really one of the pioneers of this field of community psychology, which is kind of um, public health for psychology. It's the idea of preventing problems, that no mass disorder that has ever afflicted humankind is ever brought under control by treating the casualties. And that goes for coronavirus. And today we have a vaccine on the horizon. But it also goes for mental health concerns, that we can't just be going down the river and find, pulling kids out of the river, we have to try to prevent problems from happening. So I saw this relationship as a way to prevent kids from falling by the wayside and really promoting the best possible life for young people. So it felt like something that we can do. We cannot, you know, as individuals, necessarily change macro pressures on the world, but we can change whether or not a young person has a mentor and that seems very actionable. The other thing is it was a wide open frontier. If you go to a American psychological or any conference um, and you look parent-child relationships, there's hundreds and hundreds of sessions. There's very little on mentoring relationships. It was a new field. And so I felt like it was an amazing frontier, but a frontier that I could really go crazy in. And I have, I mean, I, I continue to get findings that Really excite me and excite my students.
0: Well, it's really interesting what you say about you know the, the research showed, or at least in those early days of uh, in, in Chicago, that there, there was that one significant relationship. And as I was preparing to to speak with you, it made me think of you know I, I'm very blessed to have um, very stable upbringing uh, in my home with both parents. And I thought, well, who else has been a mentor of mine? Immediately I could think of my high school basketball coach, right? There wasn't a a personal relationship per se, but he was another adult who who influenced me how I see the world. And um, I guess as a a baseline, perhaps, maybe we could just establish again some some fundamentals for our our listeners here. Um, when you talk about youth, how do you define youth? Is there an age category there? And when you talk about mentoring, how do you define mentoring?
1: Okay, great. Um, well. You know I, as a psychologist we talk about adolescence as kind of three phases you know early which is like you know the tween years right up to 14 and then middle adolescence it's 14 to maybe 17 and then late adolescence and then there's this whole new field of early adulthood uh, the transition to adulthood which has gotten extended from when our parents and grandparents were making those developmental transitions so you really can include everything from children to all the way through to young adulthood Um, and mentoring. I think it's really important to make a distinction between different kinds of mentoring. Uh, The most important distinction is formal versus informal or natural mentoring. So formal mentoring are programs like Big Brothers Big Sisters of Canada or Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, those programs where people volunteer typically for a year to get paired with an unrelated young person and meet with them for about an hour a week um for about a year or more now that can vary but in every case there's a program that's kind of coordinating the relationship doing the background check monitoring that they're meeting and that's the formal structured mentoring and then there's this whole world of informal which is your basketball coach my college professor these people that we meet along the way and um, they're two different fields and we often conflate the two but they're very different kinds of relationships The formal mentoring tends to be a little bit more like a paraprofessional relationship, like somebody that, you know, like a tutor or a a person that is doing this thing, but doesn't really know you or your family and is a little bit more isolated from the rest of your life. Whereas the formal mentoring is often very much embedded in your life and um, the boundaries are much more fluid. Um, And I think we've made a mistake in the field of mentoring by conflating the two, because what we do is we take that big brother or big sister, um, and we expect too much of them. We expect them to be like your basketball coach or my my college professor. We expect them to be this um, huge figure in our lives, and they're not. They're often just a more perfunctory short-term bond that mm. is, um, you know. And, and so I think part of the problem with our field is that we've put too much expectation on those formal relationships, and we haven't um, really stepped back and said, these are really quite different.
0: Mm. Yeah no you explained it very very well and and um again it makes me think of um well actually let's let's dive let's dive into the differences here and I, I maybe we can look at it from a both from front, let's start with the youth perspective what their needs are and what the opportunities are then we'll look at it from let's say from an adult perspective or a parent perspective as to what they could consider for for the youth. so from a youth perspective you mentioned earlier on um, some of the bigger challenges that they're facing in our modern world mm-hmm. um Give us, can you just go a little bit deeper on the, the, the particularly on the mental health, which is which is in very rightly so, a um, an expanding topic in our society, expanding yeah. either both awareness and acceptance and acknowledgement of it. What are you seeing are the the big issues that the youth are, are, are seeing today? And and does that change is that changing by age, those different developmental ages?
1: Yes. So um, as I said, um we know that you know. More than 20% of young people are suffering from mental health issues. And what's very interesting is uh, some of my colleagues did a study of kids who are referred to mentoring programs. And what we see is that the rates of mental health concerns in kids in mentoring programs is double that of average kids, average Canadian or American youth. Um, So even though it's high for for Canadian American youth, it's even higher for, um, for kids in mentoring programs. And parents are often seeking out mentoring programs as an alternative to psychotherapy. And and programs don't even know that, particularly black parents in America. So what we, a a really interesting study is they looked at the likelihood a parent would seek out a mentoring program. And if you're a, a white family, it really doesn't change that much, whether your kid has mental health issues or not. But if you're a family of color, the risk doubles if your young person is struggling. So parents are saying to mentors, my kid has a, you know, other, they have their grandparents. They don't need just someone to hang out with. They're in an after-school program. I'm looking for something very specific. I'm looking for someone to help my kid with this struggle and programs aren't really preparing mentors to do that. So there's this big mismatch because of those mental health concerns. Now, when we move to natural mentoring or informal mentoring, we see that um, there's a big difference between more privileged kids and what they get out of their mentors and more marginalized kids. Um, what marginalized kids are doing is they're finding mentors in their extended family, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents. Those are the ones or older siblings that are most likely to be nominated as their mentors those are great relationships, but they're less likely to connect the young person with opportunities. The more privileged kids, they'll say, oh, my mentor was my teacher or my coach or my, um, you know, whatever, instructor. And those adults have what's called social capital. They have the ability to really connect the young person. So what we're seeing is that these relationships are actually reproducing inequality, that the you know, there's that old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. The, the richer kids know more people, have more mentors that are connecting them to more opportunities and really squeezing out the the, the less privileged kids from those opportunities. Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and and again, does that change by the, the age category, the age development category? Or yeah, either I mean, the issue or the opportunities to yeah. get the mentoring?
1: I mean, one of the things is, that younger kids don't have that thing that I talked about earlier, that metacognition. They can't really reflect on themselves or how they're perceived or even kind of see other people's perspectives as easily. So the kinds of conversations that they might have with their mentors tend to be more concrete and more focused on you know, the day-to-day. But as kids get older, they begin to really wanna try on and explore identities. And often they don't want the same person who raised them to be helping them explore these identities, yes. either because they're afraid that that person, you know, their parent might reject that identity, or um, you know, it's just complicated. And that's why these caring adults, particularly during adolescence, are so vitally important. And most kids get those kinds of conversations and um, you know, identity advancing relationships at school. So another concern I have is that as we've kind of shut down schools for the sake of safety, um, we're also shutting down those conversations. Over Zoom, when you've got a big classroom, you're not going to have that informal after-class conversation that could really change a person's life. Um, And you're not going to get the kind of mental health care. Most kids get their mental health care from within their school. That's cut off too. So we're seeing this. You know, the things that older adolescents need and young adults, the, the, the issues that are driving young adults are often things about who, who am I what do I want to do with my life, those are also getting lost in the Zoom world that we're living in. Um, you know, I can remember getting an email from somebody um, recently. I had no idea who she was. She was a student I had in 1990, and she said that I told her she was a really good thinker. She had turned in a paper and I had written, you're a really good thinker. I actually think you could be a professor someday, given the way you made, framed your argument. I literally have no idea writing, no memory of writing that or anything. She writes to me and says, I just want to tell you that I just got a job as an assistant professor because of that statement, you changed wow. my life. And wow. um, we are just not getting those kinds of moments anymore. And yeah. that's just one of my life. But you can imagine those lost opportunities are You know, really will never be recaptured where this is a generation that is not going to have those kinds of identity exploring conversations with non parent adults in the same way.
0: Yeah, you know, the equivalent of that, I guess, in the business world would be the water cooler moments. Right? Yeah. and they're yeah. bumping into each other someone in the kitchen and just a conversation that goes somewhere and in my career path uh, we often said that those water cooler moments or hallway conversations sometimes are the most profound they are because they're 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 the most natural natural forming kind of allow you be to be more reflective in those moments and, and it also makes me wonder for um i love your perspective and and feel free to to to, to rewrite this question if it's not the yeah. right question to ask <laughs> but um Are there, because we talked about certain mental health challenges, right? Whether it's depression or isolation, loneliness, anxiety, et cetera. Are there certain, just staying with the topic of mental health, are there certain mental health um, issues, individual ones that tend to be better served through mentoring or is it not about the topic? It's more about the quality of the relationship could address almost anything if the relationship is, is quality to begin with.
1: That is a fundamental question, um, Chris, that goes all the way back to the beginnings of psychology. Um, you know, if you think about like Freud and Neo-Freudian models of how people change, it's all through that one relationship. And you have this, it's sometimes called a corrective experience with one person, and it can, you know, unleash and change everything. And what cognitive behavioral psychologists and, and kind of the new generation of psychologists are finding is no, it's Yes, that working alliance, that relationship is important, but only so far as it helps really work on specific things. And so we've moved from this more general, what's called a non-specific model of uh, helping relationships to um, you, know, coming in to, to get help, either from a mentor or from um, you know a therapist, and working on something very specifically and teaching specific skills. Now I would argue that unless the program prepares mentors to to do that kind of work young people most young people aren't going to change much right because they're not real they, they've got the working alliance they've got that but then they're not working on anything mm, right. <laughs> and um, so I would say for a small fraction of kids kids who have had such difficulties in their relationships leading up to that mentoring relationship the very act of trusting an adult is huge and that but most kids come in and they already can trust adults so now let's work on something um, so one of the problems with programs like big brothers big sisters and many others what we would call the non-specific programs where where they don't have a particular function is that they're not strong enough it's just not a big enough dose of anything mm. for the young person you know it's kind of like if you don't know where you're going how will you know when you get there kind of thing like they're they're, they're trying to change everything let's just you know Hang out and hope that all those issues that led you here, all that anxiety and depression, and um, you know all the traumatic events that you faced, all kind of disappear because we have this one good relationship for an hour a week. It's unrealistic. It's a fantasy. Yes. And in fact, therapists. I, I there's a great um, paper by this psychologist at Harvard. His name is John Whites and his team, and they said, have we reached the upper limit of what therapy can do? Because they say, look, we're competing with 115 other hours in that week that that young person is being exposed to, to, you know, often troubling things. How can one hour change that? The the only way that one hour can change it is if we extend it, if the young person is working every single day and the mentor is just trying to help them on that journey. Um, And so there are specific issues that are more treatable you know, personality disorders are like really hard to change. But if a person has, you know, a a social anxiety, there's some really good things mentors can do with them to, you know, really address that social anxiety and and other things. So to answer your question, yes, some things are more amenable to others, but mentoring as it's currently being delivered is not going to change any of that until we get more serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, this may may be an oversimplified question. But on the similar theme, you know, it's a, it's a personal belief I have. There's no no research to back this up. It's just a personal belief that what underpins a lot of the, the mental health challenges for youth is is self-esteem, their their, their own identity. That is a, almost a, more of a foundational element to it. And I, I've also had the belief that in that window, uh, um, 14 to 17 is where we start to make some decisions about who we are and what the world is and our place in that Um are there specific things that, what, what have you found, are, I don't know, again, maybe not be a fair question, but what tends to make the biggest difference for helping someone to develop their self-esteem if you're working with a youth or engage with a youth uh, in some way? What are some of the things to, to do in that area?
1: One good thing that I think, so there's this movement in, in psychology called positive youth development. And I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's this idea that, for so many years, we defined young people in terms of the problems. Oh, let's, you know, let's try to prevent teenage substance abuse. Let's try to prevent teenage pregnancy. And and we would, everybody would specialize in that one thing. And we would try to tackle that problem. And, um, you know, Richard Lerner and other really good psychologists came along and said, wait a minute, what if we tried to bring out the strength in young people? They are, they've got so many strengths. And what if we tried to find environments that aligned with those strengths? and I know this sounds kind of vague, but it's really not. It's this notion that young people have assets. They have talents. And the, the goal of a mentor or, or any caring adult is to help cultivate that. And some of that is helping the young person to have opportunities to express their talents because every kid has different set of talents. And some is shaping environments in ways that help express those talents and, and shaping environments that, that don't Tamp down the ability to express those talents. So, having, for example, athletic programs and after school programs that have both arts and athletics and, you know, programming and STEM, like having different ways for young people to figure out what they're good at. Because once you know what you're good at, um, you begin to focus on that and it draws you away from things that might get you in trouble. And so, uh, you know, part of the problem is that. When we begin to have, you know, austerity in our school systems and shut down those avenues of discovering what we're good at and having the, these adults that cultivate that those talents, we begin to shut down this promising future for young people.
0: Well, it sounds very much parallel to the whole positive psychology movement overall, of yeah. uh, focusing on what we are capable of, not just with the, the issues that we have. And it sounds like a it sounds like a, a, a needed thing at this time, for sure.
1: Yeah, and, and I think
0: it's also in this time of empowerment, right? When the, whether it's a, you know, just the whole connected world we have now. You're right. You mentioned earlier about um, whether there's activism or standing up or you know sharing their opinions on things. And you know, I think it's in every generation, as I said, our voice matters. As youth, we are the future, and sometimes we adults kind of forget that we think we own it. But um, it sounds very timely to be focusing on that. Talk a little bit about. Um, you know, I don't know, is there a paradox going on in this, in this COVID, you know, social distancing worlds at home, more kind of a world and the loss of that human connection, but also the the benefits that we have now with, with technology and different platforms and smartphones as a way to do that. What's the role of smartphones overall? And is that even more important now in, in a COVID world?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I finished a book last year and I actually, as I got to the end of it, um, I realized that technology has a very, very important and really unexploited role to play in delivering evidence-based care to young people. You know, everybody who has a smartphone has probably, at some point, downloaded an app that promises to improve them in some way—an exercise, a, a mindfulness app, a, you know, mental health app—and on its own, it may not seem particularly consequential, but actually. This collective embrace of um, you know, interventions on our smartphones has the potential to revolutionize how young people's mental health problems and future and all sorts of social anxiety problems are dealt with. And let me explain. Um, there is a global mental health movement going on right now that, that says, look, it's really hard to get evidence-based care for the typical kid, particularly a marginalized kid, and particularly outside the US but really even within the US only about 30% of people with pretty serious issues are getting the care they need so we sometimes ask volunteers to deliver that care but how can an untrained volunteer deliver a well-designed mental health intervention for example with any kind of fidelity without much supervision and they're you know it's hard to do that and so we've kind of said no let's just default to a friendship because it's really hard to get volunteers to deliver interventions well now young people can download that intervention. Hmm. So let's just take Headspace. Headspace has great data that shows that if a young person is anxious, is insomnia, has other mental health issues, that using Headspace every day can have massive effects on their mental health. There's other ones like that. Um, And even in the education space, Duolingo, um, Khan Academy, there's these great technology delivered interventions that kids have free access to, but there's a huge problem and that is that they're not using them. Only 5% of young people who download a self-improvement app actually open them up a second time,
0: yeah, which is yeah. really
1: pressing to all the people that put so many years into developing them. It, it It's hard to get people to face difficult issues and to do that instead of going to TikTok or whatever else they're going to. And so these researchers at Northwestern said, look, what if we paired these great evidence-based technology delivered interventions with coaching. And it kind of goes back, Chris, all the way to like, up, all the way to Weight Watchers or um, Alcoholics Anonymous that you would never sign up to improve just on your own. You'd always get somebody to help you, yes. You know, a sponsor, a coach. And that can be what volunteer mentors of the future can do. They can provide what's called supportive accountability which is helping kids stay connected to an intervention that promises to help them, whether it's a language or whatever it is. And there's actually a science to supportive accountability. And then when they get together, they can practice whatever skill they're learning. You know, we never get better. And you know, this as an athlete, you don't get better at something without practice. That's another role that an untrained paraprofessional mentor can provide. They don't need to be an expert, but they can practice what it is the young person's learning. So I came up with this model. I call it blended mentoring, but it's this idea of bringing technology that's on our smartphones, that's on our PCs into the world of young people, and then combining that with volunteers who are offering supportive accountability and opportunities for practice. And I actually developed a free app. It's a supportive accountability app for mentors called Mentor Hub. that's being used by um, you know, Big Brothers Big Sisters, School Systems, My Brother's Keeper, Friends of the Children, and other youth mentoring programs as a way to kind of blend the human support with the technology delivered intervention.
0: Fantastic. And is that uh, mentorhub.com where it's you can find that? or
1: Mentorhubapp.org. And it's
0: mentorhubapp.org. Okay, great.
1: And uh, I would, you know, people can also reach out to me, but I would encourage people to take a look at that. And uh, you know, even short of that, begin to find an app that might help a young person and then provide that supportive accountability because parents and teachers are being asked to provide it all and they're overburdened. And that's something that a caring adult can do that can make a big difference. Yeah. Uh, so there that's we-
0: great. Um, and I know in recent years, there's been, I don't know, explosion would be the right term, but certainly an increase in a youth wanting to mentor you so more peer to peer again what's your what's your perspective or what your learning been on to what extent are do youth prefer is it an individual choice prefer getting uh, supported by some a peer maybe someone who's one or two years older versus an adult or are there pros and cons what's your view on that that, that dynamic oh
1: well um i just completed a study on this so so okay. your time is good um so there's this Area um, called cross age peer mentoring. And it's often high school kids mentoring um, kids in K through five or six. And um, there's a professor out at at UT San Antonio, Michael Karcher, who's really advocated it and, and shown really good models of it. But nobody had ever really tested to see what is the overall effect of this. So my students and I did a meta analysis. Which is combining a lot of studies to see what is the effect of peer mentoring. And it turns out it's super effective, much more effective than even intergenerational mentoring. And we couldn't, we, we were, you know, floored by it. It's it's like almost double the effects. And so we're like, wow, what's going on here? And you know, the reason we were surprised is because there's this whole other fear that if you put peers you know, high school kids with elementary school kids, there's this thing called peer contagion. And that is that they start modeling bad behavior. And um, so, you know, and, and and people have really talked about that. It's like, you can't really put groups of, you know, ninth graders with groups of seventh graders. They're, all they're going to do is model drug use or promiscuous attitudes about this, that, or the other thing. And so uh, it was really a hypothesis. Is this effective? And it turns out it's not effective because, their age it's effective because we didn't trust high school students to just go off and befriend kids and without any structure and so we gave high school kids a lot more structure and a lot more focus than we give adult mentors and that's what's making the difference having a target and having supervision of the mentors is more important than just kind of hanging out and being a friend um and so that's why they're outperforming their adults but there is something to having a peer mentor and it's it's kind of it's called the credible messenger theory and that is that maybe young people are, are more likely to think of a high school kid as a credible person to give them advice like hey it may not seem important to you but if you do your homework you know you can go to a good college or whatever it is and and hearing it from from a high school kid as opposed to someone like me you know a, a woman in her 50s might make a big difference right yes. and so um, so we're finding that it's a really nice model, but it's also promising, and on college students also are having a pretty strong effect too, partly because again, these mentoring programs that college students get involved in are often incubated at colleges and provide a focus and structure and supervision that a lot of bigger um, mentoring programs are providing. They're more boutique. Um, and what's promising about having students as mentors is that it's a replenishable resource. There's always new students coming in. They're kind of in a captive audience. And so you're not having to spend all this money and time recruiting random adults out there and say, be a mentor. You get tons of them. And if you make it like a requirement or you yes. you know, award it in some way, like a credential, um, you have this incredible pool of caring adults and caring peer mentors. And then you combine that with just think technology delivered intervention and training and supportive accountability and we could really I think disrupt the field of youth mentoring in a pretty fundamental way.
0: Yeah well uh, like like most industries in the world have been disrupted in the last time, you know last 20 years or so di- digitization but and it's not just digitization of things but it's, it's just a new perspective. It's a modern perspective on what really works. And not thinking that we adults have all the answers, yeah. uh, especially when we're the ones that have caused the pro- problems in many ways, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it's really empowering um, to young people. The other thing that's really empowering and that is kind of a disruption in—and I wrote about it in a paper with with a, a colleague—is rather than giving young people mentors, you know, through programs, um, and, or just sort of waiting until they happen to meet somebody at school or where else. Is actually teaching them to recruit mentors. It kind of mm. turns it around. It's teaching them to fish rather than giving the one fish, right? And so then they have this skill that can last a lifetime, and um, you know, really breaking it down. Like, first of all, why are mentors a good thing to have? Second of all, how do you make that first? How do you identify ones that you want to reach out to? How do you write that email? How do you handle rejection? How do you make an ask? And all of those things that middle class kids are are often trained by their parents to do. Um, we're teaching more marginalized kids how to recruit mentors and it's making a big difference. And so that's another model that I think is worth exploring because then again, we don't have this huge gap between the number of people that need mentors and the number of people have them. It's, it's unlimited if young people are out there fishing on their own.
0: I love that. And is there, um, is there like a top, I don't know, two or three tips you could give right now if someone's listening to this and saying, I'd, I'd love to get a mentor where do I begin? What would your yeah. suggestions be?
1: Well, you know, we published this paper and the title of it is I didn't know you could just ask. And uh, mm. that was the first thing we noticed is that you have to feel entitled to that kind of support. It's it, we're, we're all entitled to it because we all were brought and helped by someone else. It's sort of like, you know, if anybody that's successful should send the elevator back down, right, and, and help someone else get back up. And um, so part of it is kind of getting out there and spreading the value of caring adults and the value of social capital. Um, And then it's managing rejection that, you know, we're all so, you know, it goes back to your low self-esteem comment, Chris, that, that everybody feels, you know, like, they may not be worth that support. And so when somebody says, No, I'm too busy or doesn't respond to an email, they're like, That's it. I'm never going to try again.
0: Right, <laughs> right.
1: It's getting back up and saying, All right, that person didn't respond. But if I send out 30 emails, maybe one will, you know, and beginning to kind of um, you know, deal with the day-to-day rejection that we all experience, not just you know, young kids.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. You're so it's so true. And Uh, In my private coaching um, business and the clients that I deal with, it's, it's remark, it's not well, actually remarkable might not be the right word, but it is something that does pop up is that sometimes we forget as full functioning adults that, um, sometimes we just need to ask yeah and we have to drop this whole story that's wrapped around this whole, uh, aspiration that we have and, um, Sometimes we need to, need to look for, for the youth to, to remind us that that's all we have to do. They don't have as much baggage, perhaps, as we do yeah. uh, to really move forward.
1: And, you know, we're so used to um, helping our family members and helping our, our friends' kids and, you know, keeping that resource in our little networks. And, you know, I think we need to all think about ways we can more privileged people can share whatever capital they have. You know, we might not be able to share our financial capital because of tax reform or whatever. And but we can share our social capital and we should be doing more of it. But we also have to teach young people how to ask, right? Like even this morning, my one of my sons is having trouble finding a job in Chicago. And, um, you know, he, he wrote an email to try to ask people for connections, right? And before he could send it, he sent me four you know, versions of that email. And I went over them. We we wordsmithed it, but not everybody has a professor as a mom who's going to wordsmith their emails, right? And yeah. <laughs> we need to be helping young people make those connections. That's a huge thing that that adults can do.
0: Well, and on that note, just kind of turning the lens of the conversation a little bit. Let's let's talk about parents for a while for a bit here. Um, for the parents who are listening to this, who have you know th- th- those in the in the age drops, age uh, ranges that you've been discussing, um, how do they know when mentoring is an option that might might be good for their for their child?
1: Well, I would argue that mentoring is good for all children, right? Okay. You know, we have to think about caring relationships on a continuum. That you know, for some kids, they are so far down the you know, mental health um, continuum that really they need pretty serious, you know, clinical care. And then short of that, maybe, you know, somebody who's been trained, um, you know, a social worker or, you know, all the way up to a a mentor who's been trained. But then there's lots of kids who don't necessarily need that more structured paraprofessional care, but they need caring adults too, maybe to help them with their career or help them in their, their identity journey or whatever and we all need it and every young person is entitled to it. And it's and just kind of figuring out where on that cont- continuum, they're gonna get that care. Um, and, you know, sometimes kids show up at mentoring programs and they're not really struggling with anything. Their mom just says, you know what, um, I'm a single mom and my young person needs a, a male role model. And I would say, well, you know, there's such a gap. There's only 4 million kids in the U.S. that will ever be able to get a dedicated volunteer mentor. We should probably reserve those for kids that really need more targeted care. Um, But if really what they need is a male role model, then why don't we work together to identify all the male role models in this young person's life and then empower them to reach out to them?
0: Right, right. Um,
1: And so it's really not a question of, do you need a mentor or not? It's at what level and how are you gonna find that? Is it gonna be through a program or is it gonna be through, um, through your own Natural ecosystem.
0: I, I appreciate that, that, that response for sure, and you're right. I, I do agree. <laughs> you said it very clearly. Everyone would benefit from it. There's no no doubt about that. So how do you balance that? I, I guess any, any suggestions for a parent for the parents who are like, who might struggle or who might bump up to the old, their old their own story. That does this mean that I'm not being an effective parent? Do I am I offloading some of my duty and responsibility? Or, what's a different way for the parent to really understand, uh, to look at that situation?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the whole idea of a nuclear family providing everything is, you know, kind of a modern day thing. I mean, we were always in kinship networks where there were aunts and uncles and, you know, other mothers and all of this. And so it takes a
0: village to raise raise someone,
1: right? And, you know, neighborhoods where everybody raised each other's kids, you know, like part of that, we've been kind of cut off and atomized as this one family unit unit that we, you know, that's unnatural. Um, but the other is to really, in some ways, take pleasure in the idea that you raised a child that trusts other adults and trusts that they can be helpful and knows how to um, be in a reciprocal relationship. Mm. Um, and also understand that everyone benefits from this. I mean, I think that we often think about mentoring relationships as unidirectional you know it's like i have this service and i'm providing it but when you're genuinely hope, helpful to someone else you benefit um and so i think that in some ways it's being generous to the idea that other adults can benefit by being with your child right and so it's it's a, it's it's a generous spirit both ways
0: yeah no that's that's great and what about um not just for parents but for any adult listening to this We've been listening to this and maybe they, they've been thinking about it for a while that they they wanted they would love to be maybe they hadn't used the term mentoring before but they'd love to volunteer their time where their as you say their social capital to to support that what i don't know are there some fundamentals that they should i don't know, know or understand uh before doing it or what's your what's your call to call to action in My that
1: the action in that is to get involved um now more than ever we need caring adults um and Fortunately, in Canada, in particular, there's uh, a new national mentoring partnership of all Canadian mentoring programs. I think it's mm-hmm. called Mentor Canada. So, in, in and in the U.S., there's the National Mentoring Partnership as well. And and what it does, you put in your um, area code or, or your your zip code, and it'll tell you all the programs in your in the area. So that's one way to get involved, and I would highly recommend that. But then there's also Uh, being a little bit more open to the caring adults around you. I mean, adults get mixed messages that, you know, that in some ways being too close to your um, kids' friends, it could be creepy or, you know, you're crossing boundaries if you talk to them. And that's just not, I mean, in the vast majority of cases, that's not true. Talking to your friends' parents can be enormously helpful. And so being open, being around and willing to forge those connections with your with your kids friends can sometimes change that kids friends life and so it's like kind of looking for opportunities everywhere you go to um to help young people particularly now you know it's really a, i think a call to action now more than ever
0: and if someone um if someone was thinking well i don't know if i quote unquote have what it takes to be a mentor i i, I don't have training and I don't have skills. I'm only, you know, I, I only work like this. I only have one child, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What What could you demystify for someone that what's not necessary and what truly, truly matters to be a great mentor uh, for you? Well,
1: I mean, I think that um, we've, we've done a disservice because when we, the word mentor, you, you, it often is very evocative, right? You think about somebody just coming in and doing this, you know, really amazing things in a young person's life, but you can do small things that can make an enormous difference. For example, supportive accountability, just checking in to make sure they're signing on to their homework portal can be a big, make a big difference and take some of the load off a parent. Um, And whether or not that turns into a more extensive relationship is almost irrelevant. If you can do something now, even in a small way, you can make an enormous difference. Um, You know, we find... Um, there was a study done by my colleagues, Mike Lyons and Sam McQuillan, where they looked and they saw that after a certain point, the depth of the relationship really didn't matter in terms of the young person's outcome, that they, they called it the sweet spot, that, that it, yeah, there had to be some bond there, but it didn't have to be super strong for there to be good things coming from the relationship.
0: Hmm. And um, yeah, it sounds, I'll paraphrase what you said there, but as you were talking, it made me think that. Well, what really matters is your heart's in the right place that yeah. right? you want to give. And that could be a casual conversation on the back patio with a, with your, your kids' friends or something a bit more formal. But if your heart's in the right place and you're just sharing your own wisdom and thoughts, then being, you know, I suppose it also links back to self-esteem is, you know, a lot of my work and experience has said that, uh, you know, in a work environment, you know, typically like in a in an organizational environment, the thing that matters most to us thrive as a, as an employee of any organization is that our direct manager or boss, we feel like that person genuinely cares and values us as a human being. Yeah. And it it doesn't matter what their resume is or their experiences that influences about truly what matters. They feel valued. And anytime as an adult, you can be fully present, be engaged, be interested, curious, share some thoughts. Is is is, aw- is awesome. But what really matters is that person. You make that person, that youth, feel that's, special and valued. That's so
1: important. And you know, it's it's interesting you say that because we often say to kids, you know, do you have a mentor? Do you have someone you look up to? And one of my students turned that and said, "Is there an adult that gets you?" So it's mm-hmm. not whether you like this adult. Is does that person like you? Does that person understand and value you? And that was so important to young people. Yeah. To feel gotten, because they may not feel gotten at home. You know, we can't guarantee that. So to yeah. have that experience can be so validating for for young people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And just on that on that note, um, I know you, you've mentioned a few bit here, and I know a lot of your work has been around the, um, the about inequality and the marginalized youth. Um, any particular things that again the audience could should be aware of could be aware of you'd like them to be aware of around particularly marginalized uh you know parts of our society
1: i mean we are seeing um marginalization become much more of a concern i mean if if, and i trace this in my book that you know there were long periods where we had a thriving middle class and now we're seeing a bifurcation where the you know there's this really the the middle class and and the, the wealthier class is peeling away from the more marginalized and impoverished um, families. And that has enormous consequence for child development. Being, growing up in poverty, which uh, more than 20% of American kids do, um, you know, has ripple effects across everything, across their nutrition, their education, their social networks, their ability to find what they're good at and thrive in it. And so it's, you know, we think about democracy in the US, it's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are cutting a generation of kids off from the pursuit of happiness because they're not able to find what they're good at. They're being consigned to these Zoom rooms and schools that are under-resourced, that don't have athletic programs, that don't have where the ratio of caring adults to kids is outrageous. You know, one guidance counselor to 750 kids. And in doing that, we're cutting off who knows what future... Artists, architects, engineers—there uh, might have been in those places, and so it's—it's it's really, I think, incumbent on all of us to try to redress some of that by providing opportunities to see young people value them and share our social capital.
0: Wow, that's great. It's—I uh, like think we said at the start of this conversation—it's such a timely, timely time to have this conversation and to share this, as as I said, as the, as we have been more isolated in our across the planet because of COVID. Um, it's a time. It's a great, great reminder that even if we are, we have to um, be somewhat distanced from others. We don't have to be emotionally distanced. I mean, still opportunities to connect with people, especially those who are who are really at need. I guess, Gene, before I ask the final question, where can people learn more about you or get in touch with you?
1: Uh, well, I, um, I'm at the University of Massachusetts, where I run the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring. And you could just Google Gene Rhodes, and you'll find my email address and get in touch with me that way. I also um, put out a free um, newsletter called The Chronicle of Evidence-Based Mentoring. And there's lots of um, information about mentoring, as well as profiles of interesting scientists and uh, practitioners doing cool things. And I've recently written a book for Harvard University Press called Older and Wiser, New Ideas for Youth Mentoring in the 21st Century. And that you can get on Amazon or through Harvard University Press. And that's really the. the result of years and years of, of research. And I tried to condense it into just a couple hundred pages. Um, and so it, it really is everything I could think of that would help advance this field.
0: That's great. Well, Jean, it's been an honor to have you on the show here. And, and I also say that um, it's always great to speak to someone um, who's been doing what they do for a long time and and not only still has energy, but is energized by the work and the possibilities out there. I, I guess the final question I have for your time here on the Ignition Show, what do you hope to ignite in the world, Jean?
1: I hope to ignite more connections between caring adults and young people. And in doing that, igniting a promising future for young people, not just the privileged ones, but for all young people. And I think that can happen no matter what the politics are, no matter what is going on in the world, a good relationship can change the future of a young person. And so we all really have the responsibility to forge this.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Gene, for being you and being the pioneer in this area. And uh, it's been an honor here to have you here and just help spread the word. And um, we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes as well. Thanks very much for your time, Gene.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. Bye-bye.
0: That was Gene Rhodes, the world's foremost scholar on youth mentoring and author of Older and Wiser, New Ideas for Youth Mentoring in the 21st Century. You can find all the links in our show notes. We want you to get the most of the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learn. And most learning, as we know, is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you. What was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. It's a shorter follow-up episode where we, my wife and business partner Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and our website, and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.